Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Welcome to the LawPod. Today we are going to be talking about the social construction of victims as part of the criminology series. I'm Dr. Sarah Jankowitz. I'm a lecturer in criminology in the School of Social Sciences, Education and Social Work here at Queen's. And I'm Paul Gallagher. I'm a PhD researcher at the George Mitchell Institute. Um, I'm also an advocate for victims and survivors of the conflict, member of the Wave Injure Group and a member of the Victims and Survivors Forum. So in this episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about what is an incredibly complex, multifaceted, emotive and political concept victims. I'm going to begin by giving a quick overview of scholarship, how the idea of the victim is socially constructed um, and how the dominant image of the ideal victim portrays a very narrow and ideological view of victimization. Then we're going to turn to Paul, who has experiences with these concepts both personally and professionally who's going to discuss some of the paradoxes of victimhood he encounters in his campaigning and advocacy and how he navigates them. My research has focused on how societies respond to and recover from violent conflict uh, and the implications of different perspectives on victims and victimhood for how we deal with the legacy of that violence. I've written about this in a number of journal articles and in a recent book, The Order of Victimhood, Violence, Hierarchy and Building Peace in Northern Ireland. Um, and there are copies of this book in the Queen's Library if you're a student or have access. Um, in many ways, though, the dynamics surrounding victims and conflict are mirrored in how societies, which are not direct, directly affected by conflict, construct and respond to victims, particularly in the assumptions that we make about victims' personal characteristics, their behaviors, um, the nature and circumstances of their victimization and their needs. These assumptions are worth thinking critically about because from international criminal tribunals and humanitarian interventions to local support services and criminal justice systems, they shape our responses to victimization and harm. Our most fundamental insights into the processes and implications of victimization come from a subfield of criminology called victimology. Victimologists tend to argue that our knowledge of victims is not objective or given, um, but instead is subjective and it's related to various constructions of crime and harm and located within specific political and structural contexts. So in other words, our understanding of the victim is socially constructed. That means what we know about victims and about the world more widely is the product of our interactions with other people, groups, institutions, discourses, languages, images, and so on. Uh, social construction refers to how individuals and groups, as well as our identities and behaviors, are products of the structures in which we exist. We internalize the social world and it becomes our reality. Viewing victims as socially constructed lets us think about the wider social processes which define the victim, who has the power to do that defining, and what beliefs and attitudes we attach to those who are labeled as victims, and conversely, those who we do not grant that label. Nils Christie uh, is a scholar who in 1986 developed the concept of the ideal victim to describe how our socially constructed knowledge and beliefs reinforce what are narrow stereotypical ideas about victims. The ideal victim describes the, quote, person or category of individuals who are most readily given the complete and legitimate status of being a victim, end quote. 
Christy illustrates this as an elderly woman who's attacked by a powerful male, male stranger while walking home from caring for an ill friend. The elderly woman exemplifies the characteristics that we usually attribute to victims. That means she is innocent, moral, vulnerable, helpless, and her suffering was unjust, and therefore she's deserving of sympathy, care, and support. Conversely, the ideal victim tells us about an ideal perpetrator who is wholly guilty, evil, and morally irredeemable. This view of the perpetrator functions as a justification for harsh criminal justice policies and punishments. This stereotype or trope of the ideal victim becomes problematic when it's tested against the messy realities of human experience. If the faultlessness of the victim can be called into question, for example, that begins to call into question the ultimate responsibility of offenders. We often see this used in victim-blaming strategies and hearings on sexual violence, where the victim is subject to questions often aimed at pulling apart the notion of their innocence, questions about their sexual history, what the victim was wearing, and how much they were drinking. Similarly, state violence against marginalized communities is often justified by portraying victims as criminals, thugs, or rioters even, to curtail the sympathy of the wider public um, and obscure state responsibility. Media discourses are often complicit in this. So now, with this glimpse into how the victim is socially constructed and the assumptions that we associate with the ideal victim, let's hear from Paul about the wide-ranging impacts of these ideas about victims and victimhood. So, Paul, just to start out, can you tell us a little bit about the advocacy work that you're involved with? Well, my ad- advocacy work, sir, and, and thanks for the the uh, very expansive introduction there. Um, I suppose I could give you a sense of um, where it all sort of started for me. Um, I was born in Belfast in 1972 and lived here. And I've lived here for m- my life ever since. But my first sort of contact with the Troubles came in 1994, near the end of the, the conflict, whenever my home was taken over by uh, four armed men. They were there to uh, assassinate my next-door neighbours. Some of my next-door neighbours didn't turn up. They turned their guns on me instead, and I was shot. I was left um, paralysed and with severe life-changing injuries. Um, but that, that was a journey then of recovery. Um, it took many years, really, to, to get back in my feet, so to speak, even though I use a wheelchair, but it sort of put my life back in order. Um, the concept for me of victimhood didn't really kick in until later. Okay, I was a, a victim of this this uh, attack on me, um, my family and my home. But the notion of victimhood really didn't come in until later on whenever I started um, coming forward into the sort of victimhood sector, for want of a better word, as it's called, whenever I came forward for services, um, probably about maybe 15 years after the incident. So this would have been around um, 2008, 2009. And before that, I'd just been trying to get on with my life, um, trying to work various jobs and stuff, and nothing really was holding down. Um, I decided to come back to university. Um, started the Open University, and then I ended up at Queen's. At the same time, I'd, I'd come along to um, a couple of the, the victims groups here in, in Belfast. One was called VAST, Victims and Survivors Trust. The other one was called WAVE, which I'm still a member of today. And that brought me into contact with other people who were victims. Because for most of that time before that, as I say, I'd just been getting on with my own life, trying to recover from injuries, trying to recover from the... get used to the disability and all those things that come with with these types of injuries. 
But I never really thought of myself as a victim in that sense, in the waiter sense. And had been following politics over the years and stuff and had seen the Good Friday Agreement and voted for that and, and seen the hope in that. But I'd never really seen the sense that there was anything there for looking after victims. It was very piecemeal. There was various charities about the place. Um, but there was nothing really there to support victims afterwards. And when I came along to this group, WAVE, within this group, WAVE, they had um, separate groups dealing with women who were victims, who were widows, you know, the men's group. You had a group there dealing with people who um, families had disappeared. But they also had the injured group. And I fitted in there um, with a lot of other people who had come along with similar injuries to myself, people who had been paralyzed in shootings, people who had um, had their limbs ripped off, amputees in bombs, and people who were blinded in bombs and gun attacks, people with severe psychological injuries too. And that was a group there that sort of started off as a, a self-help group for people with these sort of common common injuries um, to come and talk about. And there was various sort of art projects and things like that, storytelling projects. And there wasn't... There was the inklings of um, a sense of becoming political, um, becoming aware of the issues that faced them out there, becoming aware of what really wasn't there for them more than what was there for them. So at that time you had the likes of the the Memorial Fund, which was a charity was set up to look after victims' needs, provide some sort of financial stability. It was very small. Like By that time it was something like £20 a week or something, financial aid. There was other schemes around getting you back into education, short breaks and respite schemes, things like that. But it was very piecemeal. And within this group there was a sense then that People have been badly let down by the state and by by the system and by government, really, in looking after their long-term needs. Um, along at the same time, then, you had these other, um, other sorts of initiatives going along, like the consultative group in the past, better known as Eames-Bradley. And that was their, there's an overarching consultation to look, after, look at how... What deal with the past was the, the buzzword, so this was dealing with the past. And after a couple of years, they, they, uh, they came out with their findings. And for us in the injured group, a lot of it was based around looking after the needs of the dead. The dead were the victims, and their families were the ones left to pick up the pieces. It was around truth and justice and things like that. It was around... Um, reconciliation, those sorts of things. But there was nothing really concrete in it around dealing with the needs of the injured. And we felt that was a, an insult. Um, right there only, but that was the perception that there was nothing really there. There was a sentence or a couple of paragraphs really around the Victims Commission would look after the needs of the injured, but the Victims Commission was really only getting up and going at that stage. And we wanted something more substantial than the memorial fund. We wanted something that would look into the needs of the future. So that started off then, maybe a grievance then, a sense of grievance within the within the injured group. And it triggered then a sense that, and these, these feelings were going anyway. I think one seems Bradley had started its two-year consultation that people had actually went to Eames Bradley and Eames Bradley had come to, to WAVE and had sp- spoken about some of the issues. 
around what the needs were. And these needs were maybe looking for financial assistance into the future, maybe in the form of a pension or some other assistance and it would be long-term and permanent. And we felt that that was ignored. And around about the same time as well, the group had decided to um, start up a petition. This was a the campaign, was called a campaign for recognition, because we felt that we hadn't been recognised. We felt that we hadn't been recognised by Eames Bradley. We felt that we hadn't been recognised by government and been forgotten about. And so the sense then was that we would take this onto the streets, which we did, and uh, we collected 10,000 signatures um, on so many sheets of paper around Northern Ireland. We stood outside the City Hall in Belfast. We went to Ballymena, up to Derry, um, Oma, Bangor, Ballymoney, all over the show. And what what year was that in, Paul? That was in 2009, 2010. I think up to about 2011. I mean, it took us a couple of years because it was only a small group of people going out there and standing in the street corners. And finding out what people really thought about about victims. And that was the sort of crux of it. A lot of people thought, that's great what you're doing there, looking, trying to fight for for some for victims, because pe- maybe known people who had been victimised during the, during the conflict here. But there was other people that says, well, the trouble's not over. What are you people still doing out here in the streets? What are you asking for? You know, in this sort of sense, it's just go home and forget about it. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear about you and all this. So there was some arguments or debates, maybe, as I want, want to have a better word with people on the street. Some people signed it, no problem. Other people just signed it without even looking at it, and as people do, and didn't really take an interest. But it got our eyes open to the sort of maybe arguments that we were going to have then, maybe later on when we went to politicians then, because that was the next inevitable step. And that took us then um, up to Stormont with his petition, in May 2012, and we handed it over. The five main parties' representatives came down and stood at the the front steps of Stormont, um, and took the took the petition office. And we says, "Look, we'll be back." On the same day as that, there had also been work done by Professor Marie Breen Smith, who's done notable um, pieces of work around the, the troubles and the effects on victims. And she had done a piece of work, really. Um, expansive piece on the needs of the injured and their families and their carers, which we also think is very important too because that's another section of people who've been forgotten about. That came up with so many recommendations, 21, but the main one that we thought we could bring forward would have been um, this idea of a pension, and that's something that we've worked on since. Um, and the pension campaign, did that start in 2012? Is that right? Yeah, well, the pension campaign then, it, it turned into basically out of the, the main wave injured group, which was probably of around 30 people, um, all in all, who went out and done the, the initial work on that and the, the petition, to a group maybe of about uh, five or six people who would become the, the lobby group as such. And these would be the ones that would engage with the politicians then. Um, and we thought this was... This was very doable. Um, we met the politicians, the main parties. They thought it was doable. They asked us to go back and do further work on it. So we had people in WAVE who were able to do some research and look at examples of around the world where these sorts of pensions were put in place and special special payments were put in place. So in Italy, France, Spain, places have been um, wrecked by sort of civil uh, sort of conflict over the years too. 
Um, we also were sent away to do work on what it would look like. So Stuart McGee, who was a welfare advisor in Wave at the time, put together um, a document really scoping out how much it would cost, really, what, what sort of ideas for how people would qualify for it, the extent of their injuries and these sorts of degrees of disablement. And we brought that back, and that then brought in the Victims Commission, who basically um, copied and pasted, for want of a better word, the, the same report, and we brought that back up to the First and Deputy First Ministers, who had responsibility for victims' um, support at that time. And they um, commissioned a further report, spent a lot of money on this, really looking at the uh, nuts and bolts and the mechanics of what a pension would look like. That was 2014 uh, when that was brought out. We lobbied to have that in as part of the Stormont House Agreement, and that was accepted too, that further work should be done. But it came down to this crux of... It came down to this crux, really, and what stopped it was they couldn't agree on which victims were deserving of it. And that brings it right back to what your introduction was all about. Uh, the ideal victim image. The ideal victim image. Um, the, un- the deserving victim. The only deserving victims would get it. And the undeserving victims would be excluded. And when it comes to Northern Ireland, in this sense then, the deserving victims in the eyes of many are the people who were injured by the IRA, and the UDA and people like that. Um, the undeserving victims were people who were maybe in these organisations who were injured themselves in some way or another. Um, and they, in the eyes of a lot of people, shouldn't get it, shouldn't be looked after or undeserving. And that's really where it's come down to. All the rest of the the uh, nuts and bolts and the costs and things were really irrelevant. Um, they were very doable. But it's come down to this this contested nature of who is a real victim in Northern Ireland. And it's something that our campaign brought into sharp focus, but it's something that has been underlined for years, um, for decades even. And it's never really been resolved. And that's that's the that's the, the kicker here on this issue. And what's it like being part of a campaign like that? Because I'd imagine... Knowing, knowing the other people who are in the, the pension campaign is quite a different, uh, quite a number of different backgrounds, different experiences, different feelings about um, the way the pension should work, the way victims' mm-hmm. policies mm-hmm. work. Well, to say that this group came together very organically. Um, we all came along to WAVE for different reasons. Some came along for maybe some sort of social support um, this is before a pension was even thought of. I mean, people, they all came together uh, for different things. Um, some came together for physio, for holistic therapies. I myself came along because I had sort of seen the political nature of victimhood here and how it was being played out. Um, with the launch of the Eames Bradley report on TV, it was a very sort of bitter um, arguments going on on the TV in the Europa Hotel that day. And that sort of got me thinking personally, is this the people who are representing victims, the victims groups? Um, is this the arguments and the, the, the toxicity of it? And I thought maybe I could bring a better voice. So I came along the wave to uh, see if I could find a way in to this debate and see if I could bring maybe my thoughts and feelings 
onto the onto the stage. Within within the group as well, do you know what I mean? You had people who were like I was I was twenty one when I was injured in eighty four, but a lot of the people in the in the group were people who were already in their in their sixties uh, and their seventies and some in their eighties now. Um, who had been injured maybe back in the early seventies. So people have been injured all across all across Northern Ireland. Mainly this this group this centre was in Belfast. People who have been injured in bombs back in like nineteen seventy two. Um, no warning car bombs down in Craig Avenue and, and Barron Bridge and things like that. So they all came together from different backgrounds. You had men and women, people from a Catholic background, um, Nationalist Republican people from Protestant Unionism, Loyalists, and people who were members of security forces, people who were just civilians, all, all sorts of... But we all had different ideas, as you say, about how, how the pension would would uh, would go and should go. And we had to thrice those out amongst ourselves and talk about those issues um, amongst ourselves. And we sort of came to the, the conclusion that the pension should be based on people's needs um, we didn't think that people's backgrounds should come into it. Now, this this took a while to, get, to come to this sort of uh, public sort of agreement on this that we needed to go out with a unified voice to argue this point. But it brought us into arguments with other victims groups and um, other politicians who would say, "Well, your argument doesn't stack up." I mean, we have our our uh, our notion of what a victim should be. And some of you guys, or maybe maybe all of you guys, would fall into that. But these other people out there, they they shouldn't get it. Um, and that's that's really where yeah the problem's been over this past few years. And now you're also a member of the Victims and Survivors Forum, mm-hmm. which is part of kind of the statutory victim sector, um, which comprises of the Victims and Survivors Service, yes. the Victims and Survivors Commission, the Commission mm-hmm. for Victims and Survivors. And this forum, how is that different uh, for you to be a part of that than the pension campaign? Well, as I say, the forum had been going before I joined, um, probably about three years ago now. And the forum had gone over the years and had discussed these issues. And some members of the of the uh, the previous forum are members of our group, and they had always always been in there advocating as well and getting the commission and. Uh, Trying to keep this this uh, notion of a pension there and, and fighting for it and trying to get it done. There was a few years where there was no commissioner. There was a, there was a gap between Catherine Stone and Judith Thompson, and that sort of left a, a gap of policy direction. There couldn't be real decisions made. Mm-hmm. What could be done? But yeah, because I should have said the Victims Forum feeds into the policy that yeah. the commission creates, which guides the work of the Victim Service. If I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good then. Yes, no, you're you're right there, Sarah. Um, say the forum is made up of, of uh, twenty five different victims from across the community, so it would be again something like the We of Injured Group, only in a statutory form, um, and they have to try and get people from across different backgrounds, from men and women, people who are injured, people who are bereaved, um, people who, because it, it all it all comes down to really this notion of a victim here. So you have a statutory definition of a victim. And that was set up in 2006. But it just didn't come out of thin air. Do you know what I mean? There'd been 
sort of notional definitions of victims over the years, but this one that was put into statute in 06 by Peter Hain and the, the Labour government, defines a victim as, as somebody who is was injured as a result of the conflict in and around Northern Ireland, or the Troubles as we know it. Somebody who um, had is bereaved, had a family member killed, um, somebody who cares for somebody who was injured, occur on a, on a long-term basis. Uh, people who witnessed um, bombs and shootings and things as well, acts of violence, too, and have, have suffered uh, psychologically from that too. So that's that's the notion of, of, of who a victim is here. And that's a very inclusive definition, which if we think back to the ideal victim, it doesn't have anything to do with innocence, morality, deservingness. No, it, it, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It, it, basically, it's, it's to set up the the uh, Victims Commission to set up the Victim Service and all the services that are provided. And by having this um, label of a victim, this passports you in to those services, and that's really what, what it's for. Um, it doesn't say whether you're a good victim or a bad victim or all these other notions. It just says, do you um, qualify as a victim in that sense? Um, and that's where we as the injured group and I think Wave and some of the other um, groups out there, not all, would say, well, that's how we're going to provide our services. So people come and knock on our door and ask for help with psychological like counselling or something or um, just even a, a massage and things like that, a place to come and talk to other people. Uh, they will be able to sign up and become a member of that group or a, a service user, for want of a better word, of that group. And that gets them in. And we thought that was probably a good way of looking at the pension too. Mm-hmm. So whenever we have put forward their paper back in 2013, it was the, the qualifying criteria for us was, were you injured as a result of the conflict? Do you have a disability as a result of the conflict? And and that's it. That's that's really all, all we had to it. Now when it came to the politicians, um, they had their own take on it and they in the end, we're going to be the ones who are going to have to draw up primary legislation to put this through at Stormont. Um, that just didn't happen. Um, and is that where the assumptions about what a victim is and, and who isn't a victim uh, really impact the campaign? Yeah, that's that's what's held it up so far. Um, and held it up really at Stormont. Um, there was numerous attempts to sort of bring something through that the UP had brought forward or their own private members bill, they had, they had had consultation on, on what it was and they were going to bring forward a, a pension that would exclude people who had um, criminal records, exclude people who had um, injured themselves as a result of their own actions, people maybe who were carrying a bomb um, and blew their arms off or things like that and became injured. Um, they were They were there to be excluded and the only people who would get it would be the innocent victims. As, as they would call it and and that's fair enough from their position but you weren't going to get um, cross party support There's, there was attempts to bring in the SDLP and other parties but people still wanted to have some sort of inclusive definition there was ideas brought forward about maybe having a review panel for people who maybe fell into this, this grey area to bring forward the notions of um, what their what their life's been like since and, and things like that. It's very vague. Um, 
some people that say that these people should ask for contrition or show contrition and ask for forgiveness and show repentance and these sorts of notions too, similar to what um, Jim Allister's bill brought forward around the special advisors bill. There's a review panel in there for people to come forward and look into that. So, as I say, it just it just ran into a cul-de-sac. Um, I would characterize it as being we were this political football that just became deflated and just get kicked into the stands, do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. nobody wanted to play with this this topic anymore because both of the main parties, it wasn't a political vote winner for them to take it forward. Um, either way, they would have to make a compromise on it and both would seem, seem to lose, whatever one made the compromise. So it was a vote loser for them and we just became, well, come back to us and we'll see what we can do next year. We'll see what we can do after the next election and all these different things too. So it was... And then whenever it came to the end of Stormont there, um, and funny enough, the last day of Stormont before the whole assembly closed down, we were up there, we were giving evidence to the OFM, DFM committee. It could have been the executive office committee at that stage. And we were the final piece of work ever to be done by Stormont. So I suppose that's one way of of looking at it. But I mean, that then then took us all then into into Westminster. so we've been at Westminster now since since then. And to be fair, we'd been trying to get this done at Westminster for many years. We had spoken to previous secretaries of state, saying that, look, we can see where this is going here at Stormont. It isn't going to go anywhere. It's grounding the halt. And maybe it's something that the Westminster parties, the Westminster government should take on board. Because we made the argument. They had always said to us, that, look, this is a devolved matter. This is to be dealt with by the local parties. Whereas we had always said, look, when we were all injured, Westminster was in charge of us. It was direct rule for most of this most of the time when we were all injured and people were killed. You have the responsibility. You use own legacy. You just need to deal with it. Now that argument, they tried to still keep doing that. So you had Karen Bradley, you had James Brokenshire during this whole suspension period going, We want to get the assembly back running and all we well in the world and you'll get your pension. We're going, we won't. We still have the same arguments. You need to take it on. And we kept sort of bringing the, the same argument back to them. We went to Westminster. We met other other uh, MPs over there. We brought our exhibition, which we have, which is a real visual exhibition. We have 10 six-foot by six-foot posters featuring ourselves with just a, a simple message. You know what I mean? Saying we're still here. You know, we were in your face. We're these six-foot by six-foot posters. You can't ignore them. You can't walk past them without wondering what's all this about. But we lobbied over there. We have people lobbying behind the scenes, people in the House of Lords, um, people like Lord Hay and Lord Eames. And, and that's when ones. you say lobbying, you have people who are involved in the campaign, but also the the, the main spokespeople um, who would receive a pension. Yourself and a number of others have gone over and personally lobbied. We have all, that, yep. Yeah. We took, by mean of the group, we took over... Um, at one stage, there was 12 people in wheelchairs went from Belfast to London. And that was some some journey to get us all off the, the plane and everyone looking at us going, holding us up. And you have all these problems to face, I mean, physically and um, emotionally and and the taking it out of you to, to get there to do all this. And it, but it almost demonstrates to the people whose minds you're trying to change mm-hmm. and, and who can create, who can make the pension a reality yeah. what your everyday experiences and needs are as a group. 
That's that's what yeah. you need. What I think what we do is we put a human face to this notion of victims. So you see all these stats and hear all these stats about three and a half thousand people dead and forty something thousand people injured and all these different things. We bring it down to these are the people and these are the issues and you can't ignore us. Um, and that's what we I think we have done. We have went against the notions of, of this ideal victim of the poor, helpless um, victim who sort of can't speak for themselves, um, who needs who needs support and all this thing. And that's that's one thing we're asking for, support. But we're not these poor, shrinking violets. You know what I mean, we've done our own work. We have our own voices. We have our own minds. And we've come together and we think we're a strong group of, of people who are acting in a collective way to try and force some change, some policy change that will look after us in the future. It's not much they ask for, but it's victims themselves having to do it because when you go to your political reps, they say, yeah, we want to do this, but they just ended up having done it. So you're kind of forced into a paradox where you have to go demonstrate your that you are victims while also countering yeah. the mainstream image of victims. That it is, it is, and that's what... people have. Yeah, it is a bit of a paradox that... How do you navigate are. that? Personally or politically? Well, some, some when I've been doing my research, because I'm, as I say, you introduced me as a PhD researcher um, at the Mitchell Institute, I'm researching this campaign from start to hopefully finish mm-hmm. and beyond. Um, and that's that's taken me in, um, the interviewing members of the group, but other people as well, like different victims groups out there and different other victims, politicians. But when you're interviewing the uh, the group themselves, some people are saying that you're you're prostituting yourself is the sort of thing. You need to go out there and sell your pain. Do you know what I mean? When you go to the media, you need to give them the sob story about how much of a poor victim you are and what happened to you and all these things that happened to you. And you need to do it to different media reps because they all want to hear it. They all need to hear the sob story because that's how you sell it to the public. And we get that. But it can become... Do you know what I mean? It grates on you. It grates on some people. And the stories become sort of um, softened in a different way. And it's not its not real life. It's its a sort of sense of, it's sort of fashion just to suit the media. Because you only get your two minutes. You know what I mean? You get your, your wee news package, you get your article or something, and you're trying to get the point across that we're just asking for the support. And you nearly sort of had to become political lobbyists and, get your story worked into, into that way as well. Um, but you also need a hook for the media to come on because you can't be coming back every couple of months and going, we're still here and we still need something done. So it always needed to be... It's almost like a pressure to conform to the ideal victim image in yeah. the media's eyes. Yeah, yeah. But I think over the years we've shown that we're we're not just that, that we're seasoned campaigners now. Do you know what I mean? Where we wanted to be or not, we just had to become that way and had the know about the political nuances, know which ones to go to, know about the trying to navigate Brexit and all these other different things that are that are that's just shut down. We thought storm of politics was bad. Well Westminster's <laughs> even worse. Do you know what I mean? Any time we went over there there was there was always something happening where Brexit and it was a big day, a big crunch day. Um it's built up even now even worse mm-hmm. this past few days with what's going on over there. But um you know, so what but the thing is now, with all our work, um, this pension, we believe, well, is done. It's in the recent um, sort of 
Toulon Frone before the summer, the Secretary of State brought forward a bill to keep Stormont at arm's length. This was just before Karen Bradley left. And the executive formation bill, it was just to, to keep him from having to call an election and uh, try and get Stormont back that way. And in the same bill, people remember um, the issues of equal marriage and um, abortion issues were brought forward at the same time in the House of Lords. Peter Hain and a few other lords had brought forward an amendment to bring in the pension to. That bill passed. That bill became an act. It's a, an act of parliament and the pension is in there to be done by the May of 2020. Okay. So it's not on our hands yet. Things are still in flux over there, but as far as we, we know, it's done. It's a done deal. But that brought with it some more issues around this notion of who should get it, because mm-hmm. that wasn't cleared up. And it's, it's sort of brought something up in the media too, and different victims groups are up in arms over who should still get this and who shouldn't. But we'll see where it goes. Um, and just while I've got you here, we've been talking a lot about the social processes of victimhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know you've done some work on post-traumatic growth, which I think also kind of counters that idea of a vulnerable, helpless mm-hmm. victim in that, in that image of the ideal victim. Could you tell us a little bit about that? It was sort of a realisation over the years. Um, there's different concepts and notions out there, but for a lot of us in the injured group, um, we've experienced these notions of post-traumatic growth, which is and sometimes a traumatic event can happen to you and you can just go into that's what's known as the black hole of trauma and just never escape it and you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and all these other things. But on the other side of that, through um, integrating what happened to you as being part of your life and accepting it and trying to take the positives out of this, um, you can see it a different way and that can sort of cause seeds of growth within a person. They can start um, appreciating life in a different way. They can start um, maybe becoming more spiritual. And this comes through processes of being able to tell your story um, to an audience that wants to listen to it. But you're using your story in a positive way. So that's what we've tried to do over the years. To go, okay, we were injured, we were badly injured, people were maimed and have been living with serious physical injury. But it hasn't stopped us living the best lives we can, even though it's been tough for a lot of people. And we try to be an inspiration to people out there as well, that you can recover from this in a certain way. And we would all probably recognise those those notions of growth within us and of recovery, and hopefully be an example that the others, that there is a way out of whatever trauma happens to you by maybe accepting Accepting it, um, you can't escape it. Do you know what I mean? But accepting the this notion um, uh, and just taking it on. And this, but I think this 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 campaign has helped that along the way too. Has brought a, seen a common bond within the the members too, and being that example. Sorry, <laughs> I was just going to say. I know you've talked about developing a sense of a collective identity mm-hmm. amongst the campaigners. Yeah, that's that's it too, and that's that's part of my research too, and looking at how the group came together using social movement theory and new social movement theories about this group identity, about maybe the grievance being the thing that brought us together, and the sort of campaign and the pension, but it's it's a sense of commonality too. So maybe even asking, like, even if we, if we hadn't have got the pension and it had never been realised, uh, would it still be worthwhile? I think yes, that that is. 
we would say yes, it has. You know what I mean? Because we've changed other things here. I think maybe around the notion of victimhood here, uh, but we've also changed things. I mean, the impact with other services out there. So the victim service uh, would come to the injured group and the victims forum and ask us about how to make things better, and that has improved over the years. Uh, we were also um, heavily involved in some of the medications, the welfare reform. They came through here, so we were a voice in there with the politicians at that time um, around those around those worries for people who were were injured, and we were seen as a separate group too. So the pension's one thing, but there's other things too that um, we think we've made an impact on and changed the maybe the public narrative around victims um, and made people who we, who thought they were invisible unrecognized, visible again. Mm-hmm and seem to be recognised in some way. So we think we've done some good over the years. Um, and if anyone listening now wants to find out more about the campaign and the work that Paul and his colleagues have been doing, we will link to that in the show notes. So with that, I think to summarise uh, what we've been talking about today, we'd really encourage people to think critically about public discourse on victims. Um, whose voices and interests are we hearing what assumptions are we making? Uh, what are the impacts of those assumptions on individual victims and survivors as well as society? Um, um, and I want to thank Paul especially for being here today and sharing his story and sharing the tireless work that he's been doing as part of the pension campaign. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you.